0: Chapter 9, Part 3 of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darvinia. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt. Chapter 9, Down an Unknown River into the Equatorial Forest. Part 3. Next day, the 3rd of April, we began the descent of these sinister rapids of the chasm. Colonel Rondon had gone to the summit of the mountain in order to find a better trail for the burden-bearers, but it was hopeless, and they had to go along the face of the cliffs. Such an exploring expedition as that in which we were engaged of necessity involves hard and dangerous labour, and perils of many kinds. To follow downstream an unknown river, broken by innumerable cataracts and rapids, rushing through mountains, of which the existence has never been even guessed, bears no resemblance whatever to following even a fairly dangerous river which has been thoroughly explored, and has become, in some sort, a highway, so that experienced pilots can be secured as guides, while the portages have been pioneered, and trails chopped out and every dangerous feature of the rapids is known beforehand. In this case, no one could foretell that the river would cleave its way through steep mountain chains, cutting narrow clefts in which the cliff walls rose almost sheer on either hand. When a rushing river thus canyons, as we used to say out west, and the mountains are very steep, it becomes almost impossible to bring the canoes down the river itself, and utterly impossible to portage them along the cliff-sides, while even to bring the loads over the mountain is a task of extraordinary labour and difficulty. Moreover, no one can tell how many times the task will have to be repeated, or when it will end, or whether the food will hold out. Every hour of work in the rapids is fraught with the possibility of the gravest disaster, and yet it is imperatively necessary to attempt it and all this is done in an uninhabited wilderness, or else a wilderness tenanted only by unfriendly savages, where failure to get through means death by disease and starvation. Wholesale disasters to South American exploring parties have been frequent. The first recent effort to descend one of the unknown rivers to the Amazon from the Brazilian highlands resulted in such a disaster. It was undertaken in 1889 by a party about as large as ours, under a Brazilian engineer-officer, Colonel Talish Perish. In descending some rapids they lost everything— canoes, food, medicine, implements—everything. Fever smote them and then starvation. All of them died except one officer and two men, who were rescued months later. Recently, in Guiana— a wilderness veteran, André, lost two-thirds of his party by starvation. Genuine wilderness exploration is as dangerous as warfare. The conquest of wild nature demands the utmost vigour, hardihood, and daring, and takes from the conquerors a heavy toll of life and health. Lira, Kermit, and Cherry, with four of the men, worked the canoes halfway down the canyon. Again and again it was touch and go whether they could get by a given point. At one spot the channel of the furious torrent was only fifteen yards across. One canoe was lost, so that of the seven with which we had started, only two were left. Cherry laboured with the other men at times, and also stood as guard over them, for while actually working, of course, no one could carry a rifle. Kermit's experience in bridge-building was invaluable in enabling him to do the rope-work, by which alone it was possible to get the canoes down the canyon. He and Lyra had now been in the water for days. Their clothes were never dry. Their shoes were rotten. The bruises on their feet and legs had become sores. On their bodies some of the insect-bites had become festering wounds, as indeed was the case with all of us. Poisonous ants, biting flies, ticks, wasps, bees, were a perpetual torment. However, no one had yet been bitten by a venomous serpent, a scorpion, or a centipede, although we had killed all of the three within camp limits. Under such conditions, whatever is evil in men's nature comes to the front. On this day a strange and terrible tragedy occurred. One of the camaradas, a man of pure European blood, was the man named Julio, of whom I have already spoken. He was a very powerful fellow, and had been importunately eager to come on the expedition, and he had the reputation of being a good worker. But, like so many men of higher standing, he had had no idea of what such an expedition really meant— and under the strain of toil, hardship, and danger, his nature showed its true depths of selfishness, cowardice, and ferocity. He shirked all work. He shammed sickness. Nothing could make him do his share. And yet, unlike his self-respecting fellows, he was always shamelessly begging for favours. Kermit was the only one of our party who smoked, and he was continually giving a little tobacco to some of the camaradas, who worked especially well under him. The good men did not ask for it, but Julio, who shirked every labour, was always, and always in vain, demanding it. Colonel Rondon, Lyra, and Kermit each tried to get work out of him, and in order to do anything with him had to threaten to leave him in the wilderness. He threw all his tasks on his comrades, and moreover he stole their food as well as ours on such an expedition the theft of food comes next to murder as a crime and should by rights be punished as such we could not trust him to cut down palms or gather nuts because he would stay out and eat what ought to have gone into the common store finally the men on several occasions themselves detected him stealing their food alone of the whole party and thanks to the stolen food he had kept in full flesh and bodily vigour One of our best men was a huge negro named Paichon, a corporal and acting sergeant in the engineer corps. He had, by the way, literally torn his trousers to pieces so that he wore only the tatters of a pair of old drawers until I gave him my spare trousers when we lightened loads. He was a stern disciplinarian. One evening he detected Julio stealing food and smashed him in the mouth. Julio came crying to us his face working with fear and malignant hatred, but after investigation he was told that he had gotten off uncommonly, lightly. The men had three or four carbines, which were sometimes carried by those who were not their owners. On this morning, at the outset of the portage, Pedrinho discovered Julio stealing some of the men's dried meat. Shortly afterward, Paichon rebuked him, for, as usual, lagging behind. By this time we had reached the place where the canoes were tied to the bank, and then taken down, one at a time. We were sitting down, waiting for the last loads to be brought along the trail. Pedrinho was still in the camp we had left. Paichon had just brought in a load, left it on the ground with his carbine beside it, and returned on the trail for another load." julio came in put down his load picked up the carbine and walked back on the trail muttering to himself but showing no excitement we thought nothing of it for he was always muttering and occasionally one of the men saw a monkey or big bird and tried to shoot it so it was never surprising to see a man with a carbine in a minute we heard a shot and in a short time three or four of the men came up the trail to tell us that paichon was dead "'having been shot by Julio, "'who had fled into the woods. "'Colonel Rondon and Lyra were ahead. "'I sent a messenger for them, "'directed Cherry and Kermit "'to stay where they were "'and guard the canoes and provisions, "'and started down the trail with the doctor, "'an absolutely cool and plucky man, "'with a revolver but no rifle, "'and a couple of the camaradas. "'We soon passed the dead body "'of poor Peichon. "'He lay in a huddle, in a pool of his own blood, where he had fallen, shot through the heart. I feared that Rullio had run amuck, and intended merely to take more lives before he died, and that he would begin with Pedrinho, who was alone and unarmed in the camp we had left. Accordingly I pushed on, followed by my companions, looking sharply right and left, but when we came to the camp, the doctor quietly walked by me, remarking, "'My eyes are better than yours, Colonel.' If he is in sight, I'll point him out to you, as you have the rifle. However, he was not there, and the others soon joined us, with the welcome news that they had found the carbine. The murderer had stood to one side of the path and killed his victim, when a dozen paces off, with deliberate and malignant purpose. Then, evidently, his murderous hatred had at once given way to his innate cowardice, AND PERHAPS HEARING SOMEONE COMING ALONG THE PATH, HE FLED IN PANIC TERROR INTO THE WILDERNESS. A TREE HAD KNOCKED THE CARBINE FROM HIS HAND. HIS FOOTSTEPS SHOWED THAT AFTER GOING SOME RODS HE HAD STARTED TO RETURN, DOUBTLESS FOR THE CARBINE, BUT HAD FLED AGAIN, PROBABLY BECAUSE THE BODY HAD THEN BEEN DISCOVERED. IT WAS QUESTIONABLE WHETHER OR NOT HE WOULD LIVE TO REACH THE INDIAN VILLAGES, WHICH WERE PROBABLY HIS GOAL. HE WAS NOT A MAN TO FEEL REMORSE, Never a common feeling, but surely that murderer was in a living hell, as with fever and famine leering at him from the shadows, he made his way through the empty desolation of the wilderness. Franca, the cook, quoted out of the melancholy proverbial philosophy of the people, the proverb, No man knows the heart of any one, and then expressed with deep conviction a weird, ghostly belief I had never encountered before. PAICHON IS FOLLOWING JULIO NOW, AND WILL FOLLOW HIM UNTIL HE DIES. PAICHON FELL FORWARD ON HIS HANDS AND KNEES, AND WHEN A MURDERED MAN FALLS LIKE THAT, HIS GHOST WILL FOLLOW THE SLAYER AS LONG AS THE SLAYER LIVES. WE DID NOT ATTEMPT TO PURSUE THE MURDERER. WE COULD NOT LEGALLY PUT HIM TO DEATH, ALTHOUGH HE WAS A SOLDIER WHO IN COLD BLOOD HAD JUST DELIBERATELY KILLED A FELLOW SOLDIER. If we had been near civilization we would have done our best to bring him in and turn him over to justice. But we were in the wilderness, and how many weeks' journey were ahead of us we could not tell. Our food was running low, sickness was beginning to appear among the men, and both their courage and their strength were gradually ebbing. Our first duty was to save the lives and the health of the men of the expedition who had honestly been performing, and had still to perform so much perilous labour. If we brought the murderer in, he would have to be guarded night and day on an expedition where there were always loaded firearms about, and where there would continually be opportunity and temptation for him to make an effort to seize food and a weapon and escape, perhaps murdering some other good man. He could not be shackled while climbing along the cliff's slopes. He could not be shackled in the canoes, where there was always chance of upset and drowning. And standing guard would be an additional and severe penalty on the weary, honest men, already exhausted by overwork. The expedition was in peril, and it was wise to take every chance possible that would help secure success— Whether the murderer lived or died in the wilderness was of no moment compared with the duty of doing everything to secure the safety of the rest of the party. For the two days following we were always on the watch against his return, for he could have readily killed someone else by rolling rocks down on any one of the men working on the cliff-sides or in the bottom of the gorge. But we did not see him until the morning of the third day. We had passed the last of the rapids of the chasm, AND THE FOUR BOATS WERE GOING DOWNSTREAM WHEN HE APPEARED BEHIND SOME TREES ON THE BANK, AND CALLED OUT THAT HE WISHED TO SURRENDER AND BE TAKEN ABOARD. FOR THE MURDERER WAS AN ARRANT CRAVEN AT HEART. A STRANGE MIXTURE OF FEROCITY AND COWARDICE. COLONEL RONDON'S BOAT WAS FAR IN ADVANCE. HE DID NOT STOP NOR ANSWER. I KEPT ON IN SIMILAR FASHION WITH THE REAR BOATS, FOR I HAD NO INTENTION OF TAKING THE MURDERER ABOARD to the jeopardy of the other members of the party, unless Colonel Rondon told me that it would have to be done in pursuance of his duty as an officer of the army and a servant of the government of Brazil. At the first halt Colonel Rondon came up to me, and told me that this was his view of his duty, but that he had not stopped, because he wished first to consult me as the chief of the expedition." I answered that for the reasons enumerated above, I did not believe that in justice to the good men of the expedition we should jeopardize their safety by taking the murderer along, and that if the responsibility were mine, I should refuse to take him, but that he, Colonel Rondon, was the superior officer of both the murderer and of all the other enlisted men and army officers on the expedition, and in return was responsible for his actions to his own governmental superiors." and to the laws of Brazil. And that in view of this responsibility, he must act as his sense of duty bade him. Accordingly, at the next camp, he sent back two men, expert woodsmen, to find the murderer and bring him in. They failed to find him. NOTE THE ABOVE ACCOUNT OF ALL THE CIRCUMSTANCES CONNECTED WITH THE MURDER WAS READ TO AND APPROVED AS CORRECT BY ALL SIX MEMBERS OF THE EXPEDITION. I HAVE ANTICIPATED MY NARRATIVE BECAUSE I DO NOT WISH TO RECUR TO THE HORROR MORE THAN IS NECESSARY. I NOW RETURN TO MY STORY. AFTER WE FOUND THAT JULIO HAD FLED, WE RETURNED TO THE SCENE OF THE TRAGEDY. THE MURDERED MAN LAY WITH A HANDKERCHIEF THROWN OVER HIS FACE. We buried him beside the place where he fell. With axes and knives the camaradas dug a shallow grave while we stood by with bared heads. Then reverently and carefully we lifted the poor body which but half an hour before had been so full of vigorous life. Colonel Rondon and I bore the head and shoulders. We laid him in the grave and heaped a mound over him and put a rude cross at his head we fired a volley for a brave and loyal soldier who had died doing his duty. Then we left him forever, under the great trees beside the lonely river. That day we got only halfway down the rapids. There was no good place to camp, but at the foot of one steep cliff there was a narrow, boulder-covered slope where it was possible to sling hammocks and cook, and a slanting spot was found for my cot, which had sagged until by this time it looked like a broken-backed centipede. It rained a little during the night, but not enough to wet us much. Next day Lyra, Kermit, and Cherry finished their job and brought the four remaining canoes to camp, one leaking badly from the battering on the rocks. We then went downstream a few hundred yards and camped on the opposite side. It was not a good camping place, but it was better than the one we left. The men were growing constantly weaker under the endless strain of exhausting labour. Kermit was having an attack of fever, and Lyra and Cherry had touches of dysentery, but all three continued to work. While in the water, trying to help with an upset canoe, I had, by my own clumsiness, bruised my leg against a boulder, and the resulting inflammation was somewhat bothersome. I now had a sharp attack of fever, but thanks to the excellent care of the doctor, was over it in about forty-eight hours. But Kermit's fever grew worse, and he too was unable to work for a day or two. We could walk over the portages, however. A good doctor is an absolute necessity on an exploring expedition, in such a country as that we were in, under penalty of a frightful mortality among the members. And the necessary risks and hazards are so great, the chances of disaster so large, that there is no warrant for increasing them by the failure to take all feasible precautions. End of chapter 9, part 3